Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. It's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I'm sitting with Laura Wolf, who is a VP at Ideas42 and the director of the Behavioral Design Center here at Ideas42. So welcome, Laura. Thank you. Nice to be talking to you. So Laura, before we jump into your work, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience in the nonprofit world. So I started my career in publishing on the profit side and then moved to philanthropy where I spent more than 25 years at the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation funding a wide range of policy, advocacy, civic engagement, organizing around issues from education to solid waste management and worked nationally on family planning access. And then I decided to think about doing something else and Mm -hmm. what would interest me and sort of spent a lot of time looking around, particularly around the college access and success arena. And I came across Ideas 42's work in that area and was intrigued particularly at the applicability of behavioral science and design to the work of nonprofits. In speaking with people locally, I found that a lot of nonprofits were not aware of that work, and I thought that it would be useful to, I knew Ideas42 did work all around the world and had projects in New York City with city government and with CUNY, And I thought it would be quite complimentary to have focused entity that would bring some of this information and skills to the nonprofit community, particularly because in foundation world, and I'm sure more broadly in nonprofits, we all know there's a lot of terrific programs and approaches and coaching or, you know, different kinds of models that generally cost a lot to implement and scale up and require major retraining and different staffing often. And what was appealing to me about the behavioral design techniques is that they really are, in a sense, low-lying fruit. By looking at particular features of the program environment or the communication and making relatively small and low-cost or free changes, there can be significant increases in people acting in the way they want to act or Mm -hmm. in the efficacy of programs and positive outcomes. So for the total newbie, I mean, we did an interview earlier with your colleague, Anthony, but what is behavioral design? So behavioral design draws on the behavioral sciences like behavioral economics and social psychology, research and insights about why people do what they do, particularly Mm -hmm. how they form decisions to act and then how they act or don't act on a particular decision. And behavioral design uses strategies like well-timed reminders, social norms, planning prompts, Mm -hmm. defaults, hassle reduction to increase the likelihood that people will do more of what they want and less of what they don't, to Mm -hmm. translate their intentions into actions. And so at Ideas42, we work with nonprofits, government, to think about how they can change aspects of their programs or mm-hmm. policies, communications, 
to make it more likely that the people they serve or that they're trying to attract will take the actions that will bring these benefits and services to them and achieve the outcomes they desire. So it's sort of predicated on this idea that as much as we'd like to believe as humans we're perfectly rational, logical creatures that in fact we're not. In, and for any of you out there who've worked with teenagers, you know that that is not true. <laughs> so this is particularly interesting because obviously in nonprofit, we are all in the business of trying to change something, change <laughs> policy, change conditions, change behavior. Can you give me an example of one project that you've worked on that uses behavioral design for a change of some sort? Yeah, so for example, the in the last few months, we've been working with a few organizations that serve young people. And one of them, the Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation, NIMIC, offers vocational training and education to young people from ages 16 to 24. And they offer a program, a train and earn program and a similar other similar programs where there's five weeks of core services. They give them various kinds of job preparation training and some vocational certifications, followed by a 12-month period where they are, uh, where other services are available to them to help them, whether they want to go on in education or in job search. And, and they found that very few students were keeping NIMIC apprised of their status, which is necessary to their own reporting, and taking advantage of all these services that would help them achieve the goals. So our staff went there, looked at the program, interviewed students and staff, and learned that most of them saw this program as a self-contained five-week program, and then it was over. Mm -hmm. They were not clear about what was available later. They didn't know who to talk to. They didn't know anyone who had done it. Mm -hmm. So we redesigned the communications and created some new ones, texts and emails, which are the way these young people generally receive information. And NIMIC wanted to hear back from them, so it was good to get them in the practice of Mm -hmm. receiving and replying to communications that were sent out at every week during the training, highlighting the progress made, what's next, what's your goal, now's a good time to make an appointment with your counselor, here's the contact link, congratulations, you're nearing the completion, you have completed, here's some testimonies from other people who have used services, there are these people here to help you that really made it very simple to translate the idea of yes, I want a job or yes, I want to go to college to NIMIC can provide these services that will help me, mm-hmm. and here's an easy way to sign up for it or to email somebody when I'm to make sure that I'm doing this right away when I finish. We recommend it around small things like instead of calling this a follow-up phase or a follow-up specialist, it's an alumni coach and mm-hmm. it's the alumni phase so that people are part of a community, they've achieved mm-hmm. something already by graduating, they are using the various graphics showing progress in the classroom, they're about to start their next cohort next month, so that's when they will start using these communications. One thing that we talked about with Anthony is this idea of cognitive load, and you know we know that if you're coming from very challenging circumstances, you're, you're sort of 
your mental bandwidth is limited because you're sort of focused mm-hmm. on lower Maslow's hierarchy, basic survival skills. And so, you know, when you're thinking about these behavioral interventions, how do you account for these challenges? So some of it is around attention and personalization and making sure that people see that something is for them. For example, one of the projects that Ideas 42 did with the New York City Department of Education was around the gifted and talented Mm -hmm. program, as I think we all know that one of the issues is that participation has been disproportionately loaded in favor of higher income and white families and families of color living in lower income communities have been less willing or interested, apparently, to participate or just they are less represented in those programs. So looking at where what part of what behavioral design does is look at what is the context within which people are making a decision. We talk a lot about this analogy to the uh, airplane bomber in uh, World War II that was crashing all the time, and people looked at, okay, what's going on with the training? Was something wrong with the pilots, with the plane? And then they had a psychologist go in the cockpit and see that there were two levers very close to each other that looked quite similar. One controlled the wing flaps, the other controlled the landing gear. And so if you think about people under even a little bit of pressure, forgetting where their keys are or something, you can imagine that if you're flying a fighter plane at night, perhaps under fire and stress, you might pull the wrong lever. So the correction was pretty simple. They put a little round-shaped plastic thing on the wheel control and a triangle on the wing flap, and there were no more crashes. So we look at how we can change the cockpit, the Mm -hmm. context within which people make decisions. The DOE was trying to get low-income and all New York families to sign up, and they were sending a letter with information and postcards. And we saw the letter. It had information. It was colorful. But it started out with, if your child is turning entering K through 3 in this year, and if you are interested and gifted and talented, you can sign up. So that's a lot of ifs to go through. We all get a lot of mail, particularly if we're busy or we're a single parent and we don't have time to think about this. And we wonder, is this for me? Is important what the good of it is? And so we made a few changes, starting with personalization. Dear so-and-so, congratulations. Your child is eligible Mm -hmm. for the Gifted and Talented program. You can sign up right here. Mm -hmm. You can click on this or call this number. And thinking that a lot of families that are not typically in these programs may have a sense, oh, gifted and talented, is that my kid? I mean, some of us, everybody we know thinks their child is gifted and talented. Is my child gifted? And test, oh, it's some kind of math test. He's only three, four, how is he going to do it? So the postcard showed a little picture of an item showing that it was a shape and a color Mm -hmm. so that the mental model of a test is changed to, oh, something my kid does every day. They color, they look at shapes. And this postcard is telling me that it's for me. So citywide, there was a 6.5% increase just from changing what Mm. they were already sending. But in some neighborhoods, like the South Bronx and Brooklyn, District 16, there was a 33% increase. And in the South Bronx, even over 60, where it had been a very low amount before. So... 
that's an example of something pretty small, changing the way people think about something when they're in a context of having a lot on their mind and not being sure something is for them. There are studies, particularly what brought me to Ideas 42, a big study at San Francisco State where they were experiencing a significant drop-off of 18%, almost one in five freshmen were not returning for their sophomore year. And they did a little research themselves and saw that maybe 7% of them were having academic difficulty, but that left 11% that were doing academically fine but were not showing up. So Ideas 42 did some interviewing and some surveys and heard a lot. You know, people normally think, oh, they weren't prepared for school or they didn't have financial aid, but they were able to rule out, since they were doing academically okay and they saw that the dropout didn't correlate with the financial aid or the housing. So they heard that people just said a lot of things to the effect of, I don't see anybody like me here. This, they were maybe having a little struggle with some bureaucracy or some early exam, and they thought, well, nobody else here is having trouble. They see people lying around the grass having fun, going to parties. They don't see people in their rooms mm-hmm. sweating it out when they got a B or a D. And so the intervention involved half of the students were randomly assigned to get the normal welcome video and the other half to get a video that showcased, I think, three-minute little stories from slightly older students from a diversity of backgrounds talking about how when they got here, they didn't see anybody like them, they struggled, but they talked to their advisor, they joined a club, and Mm -hmm. they were able to address it. They had the students uh, do a little paper and pencil responding to how this related to their experience. And then over the course of the year, they sent them monthly texts reminding them of things like time to register for a second semester and feeding back some of the words. And specifically for the population in their program that's like our ASAP, Metro program, there was a 10% increase over the control group in the percent of students returning to sophomore year, just from an intervention that costs about $2.50 per student. So again, that's changing the mental model that if I'm struggling here, it's something wrong with me, to a notion that this is a feature of the environment. There are strategies. The Metro Academy actually, like ASAP, provides support, but students maybe weren't taking advantage because they thought this was not a solvable thing because it was them. So part of what behavioral science is about is getting rid of our, or at least trying to peel out our assumptions, Mm -hmm. going in and saying, what is actually happening in a particular program? What is it like for somebody to come here and try to sign up or how, what happens midway and, and why do they say they're leaving the program? And then think, you know, we can't change. We can, continue to work on advocacy, but we personally can't change poverty or can't change maybe the distance from one place to another. But if we provide bus transportation mm-hmm. or childcare or show people others like them who are doing the thing that they say they want to do. So it's, you know, certainly a lot of behavioral science can be used in the marketing arena around encouraging people to do things that someone else wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Our focus here at Ideas 42 and at the Behavioral Design Center with our nonprofit partners is on 
helping people move toward the goals that they have identified for themselves and are getting hung up by things that we all face, like, ugh, I don't see anybody else doing this, or I'm tired, it's late, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, and there are ways to make it simpler to act, cutting down the steps, mm-hmm. giving a, a reminder, defaulting people in, like, for example, in addition to our project work with individual nonprofits, we offer workshops where we present some of this information and then give people the opportunity to work on a problem of their own Mm -hmm. and apply the strategies and then make a plan for implementing it. And we get some feedback from later questionnaires. And so one of the programs, a college access and success program that wanted, you know, they, they counsel a lot of students in high school, but then they want to follow them in college and not everybody was staying in touch. So they said that they were going to work on how to change from an opt-out to an opt-in. That people normally, you go to college, you have to recontact the program. But if you're automatically enrolled in the college success instead of, and then you have to tell them you don't want to, Mm -hmm. it's like some of the research around organ donation that in countries where you are automatically a donor Mm -hmm. and have to opt out, they have over 90% of donors, whereas here we have 28%, even Mm -hmm. though close to 80% of Americans think it's a good idea, but Mm -hmm. since they have to personally sign themselves up at the Department of Mm -hmm. Motor Vehicles, it doesn't happen so often. Other examples from the workshop, there's a group that works on youth economic development or however making, helping, they want young people to get banked. And they said after coming to the workshop, instead of they had been telling kids about how to go to the bank and set up and open an account and giving them the locations, they had the bank rep come Mm. to the program and sign them up right then. So Mm -hmm. a lot of what we talk about is can you eliminate some steps? Can you give people the opportunity to act at the same time that you're giving them the information? Mm -hmm. And so again, these things may seem small, but that's partly what makes them so doable. I mean, the NIMIC person in talking to me saying what she loved so much was that this was so practical and clear for her staff. Because it's not just changing the emails that they send, it's giving them a way to talk to their students throughout Mm -hmm. what they embed to clearly identify what you're trying to do and then connect it to the specific action that you can take at this moment and who's here to help you and where to find that. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of a book that I think we might have talked about last time I was here called Switch, the by the Heath brothers. And it, for those mm-hmm. of you listening, we'll, we'll cr- put a link in the show notes, but it's about how you make change happen, right? And I think there's this idea of, oh, well, change is hard and people don't mm-hmm. like to change. But actually, to your point, it's maybe about being more thoughtful about the conditions under which we're asking change to happen. Mm-hmm. And how easy we make it for people to take a step. Right. Sometimes something is a huge job, but if we break it down, so some of the techniques we use are checklists, and we've there's a lot of evidence about that, say, both in aviation and medical operating rooms. Again, surgeons are well-trained. They all know the theory of disease, but hospitals like in Michigan have found that the infection, operation infection rate went down from some significant number to zero when they had checklist about those five steps, you know, washing your hands, sterilizing, whatever. Not because the people didn't know, but you want to call attention to make sure you're doing something. 
Yeah, um, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, in the history of evolution, our brains are not that evolved compared yes. to <laughs> our technology. And actually, I was, I mean, not to be morbid about it, but I was reading this morning about a man who had forgotten his twins in a hot car oh, in yes. the Bronx, which yes. is terrible. Yes. yes. <laughs> and they were talking about in the article how, you know, we're so distracted and we forget thing. and, you know, that he wasn't a bad guy. He was actually a social worker and he just, in his mind, had thought that he had dropped his kids off because that's what he did every day. But, you know, he was so distracted by work and he went and he did this whole day. And so I say that all to say that I think we need to find hacks around our our old brains in this new world. Right. And that's a perfect example because many people would say there's something about that guy. Right. He doesn't care about his kids. So... Like when you come to this office, we're in situation B. We have five conference rooms. Four of them are called situation A, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. And the last one is called the person. So the idea that, it's based on one of the classic books of behavioral science, that basically what we do is sort of 80% situation, 20% person. Though, right. And we get that in ourselves. If we're late, we say, oh, the train was late. But the sort of attribution error if he left his kids in the car, he's it's because he's person. either bad or yeah. really an idiot. Right. So some solutions could be, how do we focus on making him not an idiot? But the more likely to succeed are things often with technology, like a little alarm that goes off if there's something in the back seat. I mean, right. we have it already in cars that if your lights are left on, again, they're not stupid. Many people leave their lights on, but so we have a little bing bing right. if your light is on because a reminder at the time yeah. is really important. So another thing about person versus context, one of our current projects, again, we don't have the outcome yet, but the, as I said, Queens was working with one of these transfer schools. Many kids are not coming very often, and particularly our focus is not so much on school, but on the work with the counseling services that are available. And the issue is how can those counseling services improve, help the kids improve their attendance and reach their desired goal. And they, some people think, oh, you know, these kids just don't care. They mm -hmm. don't want to graduate. It doesn't matter to them. But in fact, they were finding, they interviewed them and did surveys and talked that, and it's a new vision school, they had also collected data that some 80%, 90% very large wanted to graduate. They thought they could do the work. They saw that the reason they weren't was that they weren't coming to class enough to pass. So this is what we call the intention action gap. And in interviewing, it was clear that some of the reasons are what we would call present bias, that, oh, they were going to hang out with their friends or work at a job or do something else in the moment, in part because of the way transfer schools are set up, that you can theoretically make up a lot by coming and taking an appropriate test. So it's kind of set up to allow that sort of procrastination and present bias. So what our recommendation and the redesign was, every week they show them a progress thing, but it, it was just written with a bunch of abbreviations and some things saying, are you in concern in each class? and then a lot of explanation of what this abbreviation means or that. And we redesigned to say, you can graduate in your scheduled time if you pass these two classes. Here they are. 
you have, because we also find this sort of what the hell effect that if they haven't been to class, it's like, why bother? Yeah. I've already not come. Yeah. You have 20 more days <laughs> to come. Here's the contact for the person who could help you if you're having trouble in this class. Here's, if you don't come, then you are delaying graduation at least a year. So it's bringing the potential loss high in, it's calling attention to what needs to change and how to change it and that it is possible to change it mm -hmm. very simply in a mobile phone friendly text. So it's really thinking about what can we clue people into either through models of other people like them, through reminding them of them, their own goals, mm -hmm. through making it really easy to get the help they need. We often find that in our world, young people, parents, and adults have to deal with complicated programs and systems that have a lot of forms. Can't always change those forms, but we can offer help. We can even, there's one study we did with the loan repayment form, and it's many, many pages, and we can't change that, but they created a folder where there are cutouts that highlight what exactly you have to fill in, mm. and then little writing on top saying, you know, put your social security number here, mm. fill this out here, and that increased the people who submitted the form by 42% in this wow. particular study. So, and nonprofits are, they want to help, yeah. they're geared to help. So these things, at least in the workshops we've done, have felt very appealing. This one woman from the Bed-Stuy Restoration who had internship program for young people and she said after the workshop they had been just posting signs around the housing projects and mm -hmm. she learned that we talked about personalization and so she did a letter that sent to the young people and clearly gave them where and how to sign up and she said and it worked I have 12 people and they're yeah. all placed in internships now and uh, yeah. so again these are small anecdotal signs right now but our feeling is that both by the intense project work but one of the things the behavioral design center is is focusing on that is some other ideas 42 projects do but has been somewhat of a broadening that we're trying to think about what kind of education we can give people that gives them some understanding of the approach, what to look for, how do you think about a problem, how do you identify what might be a behavioral barrier, come up with a design and think about how to test it because we do believe it's not always easy to just assume it's going to work, but think about how can you look at two versions of a communication or some right. before and after. So this is the work of the Behavioral Design Center that is available if nonprofits are operating in New York City. Mm -hmm. So tell, tell me a little bit about what that process is like. And if I'm running a nonprofit or working on a nonprofit here in New York and, I, and say, Laura, this sounds like a great idea. I'd love to participate. What does that entail? Well, so first of all, you can come to workshops, and we're having one just this week, but we'll be having probably in, in late October one focused on civic engagement and in November on communication. We also take on new projects. They can go to our website, mm -hmm. BBC. We'll make sure to put it yes. in the show notes. And there is an application where they just briefly tell us what is the problem they're trying to solve, mm -hmm. and then we have some conversations with them to think about whether this is something we can provide useful help with and the projects we take on we go through this basically four-part process of 
really clarifying the problem. It might be what they actually say it is, or it might be something slightly different than a diagnosis stage where we do a kind of behavioral mapping of thinking about all the possible factors that might be contributing to why people are not doing the desired behavior, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then think about how, what kinds of questions or observations or data can we look at that will help us narrow down what are likely. And so the partner works with us maybe in setting up interviews or we observe a sign-up time or a session with the families. And then we talk with the partner based on what we've identified as the problems. They don't know what to do. They are scared it won't work. They don't have time. And think about, well, what within the control of the partner organization can be done, what change in their process or in their communication, and then we design how that could look or mm -hmm. with a communication, a template of it, and talk with them about how they will implement and assess. So interesting that you're, as you're talking because this really links to something I've been thinking about a lot around organizational design and operating systems. And so often I think, especially when you have a nonprofit that grows very organically, you have systems and processes that sort of happen by happenstance, right? Like mm -hmm. no one's actually sort of intentionally thought about, well, this is how we communicate or this is how we share information or this is how we hire or so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. so what I found happens is as organizations mature and systems are breaking down, <laughs> it becomes much more about, you know, casting blame and shame on, you know, it's my staff or it's my ED mm -hmm, or, it's, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're mm -hmm. looking at each other when really we should be looking at the underlying condition, as you say, or situation. Mm -hmm. Which to, brings up that some of these interventions can be staff facing. We right. can say, well, why isn't the staff person offering these resources? We talked in one session we did in tandem with our nonprofits with the shelter workers, they're supposed to be implementing a new protocol around, and one piece is comprehensive case conferences. And it turned out there was a lot of confusion among the staff about what triggers that conference. And so we talked about where could those triggers be posted? Could they be drop-down menus in the form they have to fill out? Mm -hmm. Of course, how can you carefully embed them in the training? But mm -hmm. similarly with staff in any nonprofit, again, do we blame, though, he doesn't care about the kid or he has 500 kids and right. maybe if you, or he didn't know himself that this was available or that the kid wanted it. So yeah, there's a lot of places yeah. to intervene with the staff and the organization as well as in interacting with clients. So Laura, if I'm listening to this podcast, I'm not in New York City and I can't come to one of these workshops, which are they free by the way? Yes, our workshops now are free. We are, thanks to the funding of the New York Community Trust and the Booth Ferris Foundation, we are also able to offer some fee-for-service kind of workshops that are outside of the purview of that All right, brand. so if you're listening, there's no excuse not to take advantage <laughs> of these workshops because they are free. If you're not in New York City, could we Certainly, find out more information? There, there are many resources on the website, okay. ideas42.org. There's a behavioral hub uh -huh. that has different topics. And we do have projects in a variety of states and countries around the world. We are hoping to be able to launch some behavioral design centers in some other cities. But even now, we definitely have projects in our health and economic justice and post-secondary education areas and environmental sustainability that operate in 
poverty alleviation in other states as well, but certainly they can learn a lot and see many publications that we have Wonderful. available online. Excellent. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. This was so educational, and I, I'll make sure that everything is posted in the show notes, but really appreciate your being here. Thank you. Appreciate it.